We're doing Go Guma Chung Go Guma Kwaja. I was gonna say upside pie, upside down pie, <laughs> C shape, right hand. Upside down pie. Oh, I see. You're listening to the John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Welcome back to the John Chi Show. I am your co-host, Nathan, along with KJ and Patrick. Say hello, guys. Greetings. Hello. I know. I, I, I kind of go into like my announcer voice, right? And I started that. I just hear you. Sequence. I just hear every time you say, I am your co-host. Yeah. I just hear you like mentally add co-host because I gave you crap one time for just saying I'm your host. And I'll never forget it. And you'll see, never it's, forget. It's, it's I, I learn, and I—that's that's what you need. Yeah, you're but well we trained. are the—you know—we are the John T <laughs> Show. It's all about learnings here, right? We are learning. We are learning what the word John T means, right, Patrick? Yeah, that's true. What does it mean? <laughs> uh, Patrick has the most fluent of the Korean <laughs> language among the three of us. What does I don't John even think mean? I pronounce it right. I say John T, but I think it's like John T, like more like that. I don't know, Order. but. <laughs> I think I think we get lost in pronunciations, you know, and it takes up too much time. But um, <laughs> Janchi means uh, celebration, and we here at the show use it to celebrate our identities as adoptees, as Americans, and as Koreans. And that is it. There is no <laughs> no other meaning. points of complexity. <laughs> there is nothing else behind it. And if any of you caught the live stream last week, I had a Doljanchi at my house Woo-woo! over here. Uh, a few, uh, a few of you I saw come online. Thank you for watching. It was for my daughter's first birthday, and uh, a lot of fun. She she chose the rice. If anyone is curious, which yeah, but the game was rigged, Nathan. No, it was... explain why. <laughs> Don't because put them on blast like that. <laughs> Don't she put them on blast on air. <laughs> Honestly, she didn't. I don't think she even knew it was rice. I mean, you just see a bowl of something, and she just but she beelined right to it. So mm-hmm. I thought she was going for the stethoscope, honestly. But um, so yeah, the rice symbolizes abundance of of everything potentially. So we'll see of everything of everything. I I don't know if there's a clarification of what the abundance is. Abundant Just the word problems abundance. could be abundant yeah could be abundance debt. of problems abundant ca- calamity. <laughs> I'm gonna go with abundance of awesomeness. So we'll see. Nice, I like it. We'll see what uh, what happens for her future. <laughs> I think, think she will be, be an well abundance of rice. Of. An abundance of love. That's there for sure. She already has. But what a great dad. <laughs> I love it. But this is uh, what episode uh, 23. Right? I have so, no idea. I don't know I either. Don't even know. I'm gonna look it up right now. <laughs> I could just be. We're very organized just, here on the John Chi Show. I, Anyways, I'm, you guys uh, keep going. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. Tell, I'll fill. I'll fill for time. So, no, you're right. uh, so this is episode anyways, 23. So. Oh wow. Yeah. He's right. No, he wasn't wrong. I was. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> this is a great intro. If we've we always we always find a way to just crush it and i think i think we always right find a way to have some real awkward pauses <laughs> while we get our crap together that's that's all for the editing and, and then we're like oh welcome. yeah okay this is how we do the show this is how we this do this is why people it. come back this is what where everyone wants to listen because this is how we john chi this is fun we're just three of us making really bad jokes that i'm gonna yeah. cut later that's fine uh <laughs> 
Um, okay, so it came up in one of our interviews that, Nathan, we had never talked about your pro ping pong career. <laughs> uh, sorry, pro table tennis uh, career. I don't know so, if I call it pro. I, would I mean, call it you went on tour. Competitive. So that's pro enough. Competitive. Pro, did you make any money? Uh, yeah, so a little. Okay, pro. Prizes. And a couple. Pro. Of, I have a box of trophies somewhere in my basement. <laughs> but <laughs> All first place, I hope. Uh, not all, but okay, that's fine. Some are participation trophies. No, I don't know. <laughs> nice. That's uh, it was it was a fun thing. It was definitely something that I enjoyed in my youth. Uh, I think I started when I was, I would say, sixteen, because um, I know I could drive to the center that they where we played, and I played pretty much for you know for two years straight of of almost every day. It was it was like an after school sport for me. I would I would play a lot. There was only a couple times when I had to stop playing, and it was because I was also on the uh, high school tennis team. And I told myself that if I played tennis and table tennis at the same time, I would mix the two up because they were different movements, and it was going to mess with my my game. So where are table tennis tournaments held? All over the country. So I mean, all right. Where was your favorite tournament? Uh, Las Vegas. That's the U.S. Nationals. You played in the Nationals? <laughs> he yeah. says it so just nonchalant. Just I enjoyed playing at Nationals. You know, there were yeah, famous people. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't win at the U.S. Nationals, but I mean, I didn't play in the Olympics or anything. But I, you know, back in the day, I feel like two steps away. So <laughs> nah, you can anybody can play in the Nationals. There's different categories. Couple rapid fire questions: uh, yeah. singles or doubles? Singles. I have both. both. Okay, forehand or backhand? Forehand. What was your uh, ball weight star rating thing? Ball weight? Oh, you mean like the quality of the ball? Yeah. They were uh, Back then, so here's a funny story. Back then, the balls actually changed. They were 38 millimeter in size. Uh-huh. And now they're 40 millimeter in size. So nice. Table tennis game, got bigger balls. The game has changed. <laughs> it slowed the ball down. And on top of that, the ball is now, I think there's the balls are 3D printed so that there's no seam. So that the balls Ooh, don't, don't uh, they're, they're more perfect. So they have less uh, spin and movement. Is the new technology wanting you or bringing you back in? Are you ready to get back into it? So I, I kind of i found a club out here in california and i went and played at it a little bit and it was it was fun it was good to get back into it i played a couple weekly tournaments i guess that they were holding and and uh, just for fun i didn't didn't win there was this one guy who was really like he was there every day he was he was <laughs> hardcore but uh, <laughs> but it was fun to get back into it and and definitely play so nice is is that something that you are going to pass on to your kids is that I something you're like going to let them sure. be involved in yeah, if they want to be, be obviously it would be fun to play with them. I mean, that's I started playing in the garage with my dad, and then that progressed to this this little outlet of mine. But uh, yeah, wait, I hold on. I need to I need to know this though. Uh, how many paddles have you broken by accidentally from falling or from anger? In anger, <laughs> anger for sure. Yeah, how many paddles in anger? A fair fair amount, I would say, maybe okay. two or three oh, during a game. I no, not not per okay. game. I, the rackets got expensive the, to the point where when I was really playing, rackets were easily between a hundred and two hundred dollars each. Wait, do you call them rackets? 
Yeah. Blades. In table bl- tennis? Blades, the, the, baby. So the, the actual oh racket is I'm a not, blade. You know what, Nathan? I regret this. I'm not ready for this level of pretentiousness when it comes like to it. table I'm tennis. I'm ready for it. So uh, we're moving on dot .org. You know, here's, here's another, here's another statement it. that somebody used to joke with me when they would ask me, so you play ping pong? And I go, no. Ping pong you play in your garage. Table tennis is an Olympic sport. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> wow. That is amazing. Well, KJ, what sports did you play in high school? Uh, in high school, I was on the varsity football team, uh, which is not a flex because oh. <laughs> I <laughs> no, because uh, no, I went to a, a small Christian school, and my freshman year was our first year ever to have a football team. So they just said anyone who wants to come out, you can play. <laughs> like I don't think there were any cuts, and I was like, perfect, uh, <laughs> made it. So yeah, and then uh, I played baseball in high school because I needed a PE credit. Um, I was literally just there for a credit, and there's not that much physical effort in baseball. <laughs> so I was like, only if you're great. not trying. Sports I, are so so Texas of you. If you thank you, <laughs> what I don't think of uh, baseball as that Texan, but all right. It's no. America's sport. It's, America's yeah. I mean, it is America's. I'd it's say America's there's pastime. two sports I that, that I would America's think Texans sport. would play would be football and baseball. So I would think it was yeah. like football and football. <laughs> no. A lot of football. Like, there's high school football and college ball. <laughs> true, and that's, true. that's pretty much it. Well, that's. I mean, I was in Oklahoma. Football, you know, the Sooners and stuff were pretty big. Yeah. We didn't actually you have guys any the professional rivalry. sports. Dude. Red oh, wait, rivalry. are you a Sooners fan? No, I'm not a football fan. <laughs> oh, okay. But like, it, all right, I'm not even going to ask because depending on your answer, we might have to end the show. So, <laughs> Patrick, what about you? Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, I played sports all growing up. Um, basketball was my favorite. Uh, I played that. You like to the like, dribble up and down the court. Yep. And you're also uh, taller than you. I can't. So you, I don't get how you know all those lyrics. The whole song. You just do. I, I so love much. that movie. I, love it. I don't know. I. I mean, a it's, a it's an adoption movie. movie, so let's talk about that for a sec. That like didn't even like <laughs> put that together until right now. That's an adoption movie, but yeah, also that song. I was like, yeah, this is it's a rap so song. It's clean ish. Hilarious. Uh, yeah, but I played basketball, and then in high school, I played basketball. I ran track, and I played football. I really, really enjoyed playing football. Um, what position? Thought I was going to go to college and play. Uh, oh, wow. I played. I was a receiver, but uh, my sophomore year, I started to play a little bit more safety. I went from being a defensive end to a linebacker to playing safety, and I really liked playing safety. And then it wasn't until I was like a senior that we introduced like cover two stuff oh, and things sure. like that. Uh, Nathan, that's a. Uh, you guys could have been speaking a whole other language there for the last five <laughs> yeah, minutes. Yeah, I just, I'd like, sorry, none of that sorry, makes everyone feels that so asleep. much of this alienating I, I, for, people. And be I like, was like, right. wait, are we talking about math? They're four, 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 and the yeah. three, Music, two, actually. and the four. Um, anyways, yeah, that's four, I. 16. I was always into sports, but I was always the what really sucked, and I don't know if you guys got this like when you were playing basketball, but. I was playing basketball right around the time that Yao Ming came into the league. And so I was Yao Ming all <laughs> until I was a senior in high school. It sucked. I hated it. I acted like I didn't hate it, but I 100% hated it. Um, but I really, really liked playing basketball. Um, I was, I did play center, but I prided myself on being able to, I developed into being like a guard and I could do that kind of, wasn't like great by any means, but I really enjoyed playing those things, uh, playing those sports. And then, yeah, I enjoyed running track too. I just enjoyed everything, I guess. Isn't that funny how 
you were associated with Yao Ming because um, you're Asian. And when I played tennis, I was associated with Michael Chang because that was my era. Um, oh, okay. For tennis. And so, yeah, I would always pretend to be Michael Chang. And my other friend would be Andre Agassi because they always had a big rivalry. <laughs> okay. Um, but it was just funny how we would, I don't know, relate to Asian, you know, athletes. And I don't know. I, I think that's a, I think that just right there proves that they, there need to be more Asian athletes, which now there are tons right. more than there were back in the day. Well, just um, to clarify quickly, I was not relating myself to Yao Ming. <laughs> I was being related to Yao Ming by white people. They uh, were calling you Yao Ming. Yes. And oh, I okay. I mean, I got why they would do that, but I, to be racism. honest, did not like it. Did not enjoy it one bit. But I had to, like, own it, you know? that's the. I think that's the really terrible thing that we have to go through, uh, not just adoptees, but Koreans that grow up in predominantly white communities, you know, that's what you do. Like you're you're the identifying Asian, and that's it. Like whatever famous Asian we know, that's you, and then that's your identity. So that sucked, but not to just be down and on the show. Uh, just wanted to clarify. <laughs> I see now. Good pause. All right. <laughs> good good talk. Uh, I didn't mean I to take it, it like such a weird direction. No, I but. think uh, I think we're done. Thanks for everybody for listening to this <laughs> twenty-minute episode where we're sports talk with the boys. Sports talk with the boys. Speaking of sports talk, I'll add one more thing that in there, as since we're since we're talking about sports and all of the sports we played. But when I was in Korea uh, three years ago, I saw a thought it was a badminton. I, I didn't really know what it was, but it was a net like a tennis court net, um, but it was on dirt. And I kept looking at it at this place, and I was like, "What is that?" And I and I asked my brother, and he said, "It's it's um, one of their sports that they enjoy playing. It's called joku. Have you heard of that, KJ or Patrick? No. Mm-mm. So joku, uh, essentially, which I'm probably not pronouncing it exactly right, but um, is a combination of volleyball and soccer. So oh, there's a, yeah. a very low net, like a <laughs> yeah, tennis net, yeah, yeah. and then you can't use your hands. So uh, everything is played volleyball style in a way, but with your feet, your head, your your body, your shins, your knees, and then you know you pass essentially to another player, and you only have three hits like in volleyball, and then you have to get it over, and that's that's it. But it was invented, I guess, by the Korean Air Force um, for uh, um, you know back in the day for uh, athletic training and uh and it's become widely popular in korea they call it the korean football essentially but go watch some videos of it if you want j-o-k-g-u yeah joku that looks amazing i love volleyball easily my favorite sport to play uh and then i also really like soccer uh to play and to watch so that's a perfect combo for me yeah it's a really neat sport to watch and it was fun playing we i played it with my brother which was kind of kind of neat just because you know here we are in our older years when we this is probably a sport we would have played if we were growing up together so but now you can throw out your hips together (laughs) (laughs) nice all right well if you are just joining us because you skipped ahead because you didn't want to listen to three dudes talk about sports uh welcome back this is still the john chi show uh we're about to get into our interview we have an interview with lauren sharkey uh, it was so, so good. Um, we're just so impressed by uh, her story and uh, her process of writing a book, uh, which we get 
get into. Um, this is it was a really fun, really heartwarming uh, language language heartwarming. Gosh dang it! It's a really fun, really heartwarming interview. Um, and yeah, so here is that interview right now. Oh, uh, right before we drop into the interview, if you in the off chances you listen to this and there are little ears nearby, you may want to put in headphones. All right. We are here today with a very special guest. I'm going to do I'm going to try and do a Jerry Wan um, with his guest. So. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian. Americans. Welcome back to the John C. <laughs> Show. Um, no, we are here with a really special guest today. I have been following her on Instagram for a while. Um, does a lot for the adoptee community, but is also ex- incredibly talented writer has and gives a lot of resources when it comes to writing and publishing and as an author herself um i would i am very very honored and it's my pleasure to welcome lauren j sharkey to the show <laughs> <laughs> lauren thank you for joining us thank you for having me i feel like lauren and i really just connected very recently and started having conversations and it just just it took off from there and was great. Uh, it's always nice to meet an, other adoptees in this space as we do on this show and love to share stories of those adoptees. So, Lauren, we're going to kick it off the way that we always do and ask about your adoption story and just a little bit about your growing up. Okay, so um, I was adopted from South Korea. I don't even know why I say South Korea because it's literally the only Korea that lets people out. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> but yeah, I was. You know, adop- but the number of times you get asked, "Are yeah, you from North right? Korea yeah. or South Korea?" You're just like, you have to say, "I'm from South Korea." <laughs> Legit, I'll get people that are like, when I tell them I'm from Korea, they'll be like, "How did you escape?" Oh, wow. (laughs) And I'll just say with great difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Because, like, how else do you respond to that? I saw a bright light. I went for it, kicking and screaming. And then some hands grabbed me. Oh, that was a great answer. (laughs) But, yeah, I was adopted when I was three months old in the late 80s. And I was adopted by a white Irish Catholic couple and raised on Long Island, um, which is sort of the landmass to the right of New York. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, um, went to a predominantly white school for most of my years, and went to Catholic school up until college. And um, I have one brother who is also adopted, but it was something that we never talked about and that we still don't talk about. Where is he adopted from? He's also adopted from Korea. Um, he has a little bit more information than I do. He actually has a picture in his baby book of um, a foster mother holding him, um, which I do not have. So I don't even know if that's the reason we don't talk. Maybe it is. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we never talked about it. It's actually weird because... There was a couple that my parents were friends with that had two girls who were also adopted from South America, and we never talked about it. And the boy down the block from me was a domestic adoptee, and we also never talked about it. So I actually grew up with a a lot of adoptees around me, but none of us ever really talked about the fact that we were adopted. Did you, were those like your friends growing up because you were kind of in the smaller town, or what was that like just growing up? obviously in a predominantly white neighborhood. I think it's because they were all, my parents had like a friend group that was all on the PTA and their 
their girls just happens to be adopted. But I think there was like a subconscious sort of survival instinct to not draw attention to the fact that we were adopted. That if we somehow talked about it or voiced it, that we would somehow draw attention to ourselves in a negative way. Okay. Yeah. Um, So outside of not talking about adoption um, and then growing up in the predominantly white community, did your, for a lot of adoptees, you know, some people do have parents that connect them with their culture or go out of their way or, or try to, 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 to promote and facilitate those things. Um, what was that experience like for you? Did you have any connection with your, with Korean culture at all growing up, even though it wasn't that predominantly white community? Um, no, there were really no racial mirrors anywhere um, where I grew up and not to jump in and be like, Oh, just to defend my parents. But I don't think that was something they knew that they had to do or that they should do. I think the adoption agency was so I actually found out I was adopted on my first day of kindergarten when another classmate saw my mom bring me to class and asked who the woman was. And I was like, that's my mom. And she, she was like, well, how come you guys don't look alike? And um, that was the first time I noticed that there was something different about the way me and my mother looked. And when they explained what adoption meant to me that day, because someone was straight up like, hey, you're adopted. And I said, no, because I don't know what that word means. <laughs> I love the logic. That's amazing. I was like, no, that can't be right. I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> yeah. Well, my dad is a... Okay. Wait, and that was, you said first grade or kindergarten? Kindergarten, yeah. Kindergarten. And then yeah. in later years, my parents, when I asked them about it, they were like, well, the adoption agency told us not to tell you hmm. that you would just like figure it out. And it's like, in what fucking world would I figure that out? <laughs> this is like the Da Vinci code over here. Like, I mean, I was like, how would I get that? How would I know that? And, um, you know, it's really strange how deep the narrative goes. The dominant adoption narrative goes to ensure that adoptive parents really hammer home this idea of like one of us. You know, my parents would always say that, especially when I brought up issues about race. They'd be like, well, you're American. You're one of us. Mm. You know, of course you speak English. You're one of us. And it's like, but I'm not one of you. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that, I mean, it just has to do a lot with like these identities that we all carry, those three separate identities, you know, and how we don't really fit into one, which now puts us in our own category um and yeah you're absolutely right lauren a lot of it goes back to that assimilationist mindset um that a lot of adoptees were burdened with uh with coming over as infants of who needed saving per se um just to just to fit in you know and and that was a way to ease the pain was to make it easier and, and to make it so they would be happy and would fit the you know the mold that was being uh shown more widely across uh, America at that time. So, um, yeah, that's, I think that's really interesting that to have that experience so young and to then start to be aware of like, I am adopted or, you know, and so 
you know, was that something that after that experience, which you recall obviously very vividly, what was that? What was the next step after that? Like, when did you come back to that? Or, you know, was that after high school maybe? Or what was that? What was that like? So when my parents explained it to me as a child, they explained it to me in a very formulaic way, very mathematical way. Like we wanted to have a baby. We could not have a baby. Therefore you're here. And I think as a child, that's probably the easiest way they could have explained it because it doesn't leave a lot of room for interpretation. But growing up, knowing that in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, so it was sort of like when you go to the diner and you ask for hash browns and you get fries and you're like, good enough. Like, that's sort of how I felt like. And it's like, you didn't choose me. I was just the next available kid on the conveyor belt. So it really could have been anyone. But also, it's sort of like the, do these jeans make me look fat? You know, you're kind of sitting there like, would you have still adopted me had you been able to have children naturally? And the answer is no, but no one wants to say it. (laughs) And so I sort of, that one interaction, I feel like it informed the way I saw myself and my value for the rest of my life. Um, Not to go all Westworld, but it was sort of like the cornerstone of my identity. And then I realized that I wasn't just no one's choice. I was the backup plan. I was sort of like the girl you go home with when all the tens have left the bar, you know? And I thought that I really desperately needed to prove to myself that I was worth having, that I was worth being around. And that caused me to go down a path of being with some very bad and emotionally unavailable men. (laughs) So, I don't know if you want to necessarily share on those experiences, um, but obviously, you know, those traumas do inform the ways that we can, that we move forward in our lives that can cause decisions that people, that one can say were bad. You know, I, I definitely have had and made my fair share of decisions that I would consider bad um, throughout my life. Not that I had ever thought of them being informed by this trauma, but, you know, when I look back on it, it's like, okay, I could definitely probably correlate this to that. Um, talk about, talk to us a little bit about getting out of high school and and starting that journey after that. Maybe this is coinciding with those bad relationships, (laughs) but what was, what was your journey like at that point where you're taking your first steps out of your parents' home and then exploring a, a wider world? So high school was really rough. Um, not just because I was the only Asian person in an all girls white Catholic high school, but because my mother and I were just like at each other constantly was always angry with her. So when it came time for college, I was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. I'm getting as far (laughs) as humanly possible from you. And I wound up going to college out of state in Pennsylvania and just like cutting off all contact with her. And where I came from on Long Island, or I guess not even Long Island geographically, but just like my mother's house was a house of a lot of rules. Mm-hmm. No phone after nine o'clock, no TV after 10, couldn't watch Dawson's Creek. <laughs> <laughs> Which of like all the shows to ban wasn't like the one that I thought was like the most problematic, but like, okay, mom. 
But yeah, you know, so <laughs> lots of rules and lots of violations of privacy. She was a master at picking up the receiver and Ooh. like not clicking like the mm-hmm. button or whatever. So I never knew when she was listening, not listening. And a lot of the things that she had limits on were boys. Um, if a guy wanted to date me, he had to come to the house and meet my parents. And it's like, what person walks into that kind of death trap? Like, seriously. <laughs> so the thing that I really threw myself into once I got to college was going to parties and meeting dudes. Mm-hmm. And not a really, not a really great way to live <laughs> um, when you've been deprived for so long. It's sort of like when you're told not to have sugar or carbs and then like you eat a whole plate of pancakes, Yep, (laughs) you know, that kind of deal. Oh yeah. So, um, I ate a lot of pancakes. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And, um, I think there's something, there's a certain kind of person that attracts people who don't think very much of themselves. And I would be really interested to see more studies um, from like the psychological community about the number of adoptees that find themselves in either emotionally or physically abusive relationships. Cause I have to think that it's probably high. Um, and I think like my self-esteem was so very low from not just from my mother or the dominant adoption narrative, but just the fact that like no one had ever made it clear to me that I was a choice, that I was a choice they made. It was sort of like a choice that they were stuck with, not one that they consciously wanted to have to make. So I think that adoptive parents really need to be conscious of the ways the dominant adoption narrative not only informs how we see ourselves and how the world sees us, but how we value ourselves. And I think that's something that like adoptive parents really need to examine more closely. Yeah, you know, it's I'm interested in in the intersection between uh, the story that you've told us and the story that I have in my own head about my adoption, right? Because mine uh, is very much the opposite. Uh, that my parents were like, you were a gift from God and like you fulfilled all these promises that he made to us, you know? And so um, I ended up putting a lot of pressure on myself to live up to that standard. Right. Mm. So I'm just curious, like uh, from these kind of opposite point of views, and then also um, in a non-adopted parent, sibling or parent, sibling, parent, child relationship, just like what the intersection is of um, like, I don't know. I'm maybe I'm hyper aware of it because I'm an adoptee, but uh, like when I have kids, uh, how can I not do some of the same things that, you know, I, and I didn't even uh, know that this was happening to me at the time, but now that I have language for it and like have a better, I'm going to say this word and I think it might be wrong. Nunchi about uh, <laughs> what's uh, like just kind of the, the ways that our, our words can affect kids, you know um, also the world is, older uh yeah it's just like how do we so i I would be curious to to see what that intersection is between um your story my story uh, a non-adopted kid's story you know and then the the roles that parents and their words play um in the development of a kid even as early as you know kindergarten so if i had a dime 
for all the times though I've said something to my kids that I'm pretty sure my parents said to me. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it just comes out without yeah. me actually thinking about it and actually thinking, oh, should I have said that? I like, Did my parents say that to me? Because I just re- I regurgitated it and I'm like, I'm not going to think about that a little bit more. But I say things all the time that that definitely make me think about, uh, um, not that, I mean, my parents raised me, I think, very well and, and uh, had, you know, very good intentions, but I still think there is a few things that, you know, everyone has good habits and bad habits. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. I use some of the bad habits that, uh, that I've learned through that over the years, but, um, but hopefully there's more good than bad. So that's, yeah. that's all you can hope for when you're raising kids. <laughs> for sure. And I think like, that's a huge part of it is I didn't have the community that I have now. And one of the reasons I think that I was so angry as a teenager was because I didn't have the language to verbalize what I was feeling or why Mm -hmm. I was feeling that way. If I had had a community of adoptees when I was like 16 or 17, who were talking about trauma and trauma responses and identifying those, I think I probably would have been a completely different person Mm -hmm. than I am now. And I think also the dominant adoption narrative and the way they have sort of dominated the lexicon of adoptee-related language or adoption-related language is huge because I was told from like a very young age how I was spared an awful life in Korea, you know, how awful my life would have been had I stayed there, you know, would have ended up in like, a warehouse assembling iPhones or like a (laughs) rice patty. If they even have rice patties in Korea, because I don't fucking know anything (laughs) about Korea. (laughs) And like, you know, you're filled from a young age with this sort of obligatory gratitude towards your adoptive parents. You hear about this huge sacrifice they made and, you know, kind of what an investment you are. And then, You're like, okay, so I can't fail at anything. I can't be sad about being adopted. I can't be angry about being adopted because they've invested so much. And that obligatory gratitude sort of contributes to adoptee silence, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's why in the adoptee community, you hear so many people talk about internalized feelings, uh, especially like repressed anger and things like that. I, I bring those up because I specifically deal with those in my own life and have only just recently this year started to uh, truly understand that that's where some of that comes from. I'm not saying that it all does, but I can definitely now start tracing to a li- a base of what that, that, emotional responses that I have to certain situations. Well, actually all situations. Um, sometimes I'm just like, man, what are you, who are you yelling at? There's no one here. <laughs> Why are you so angry? Um, and uh, at this thing. And I think that, you know, I think that's another thing that is so unique about our community is across. So like each one of us as hosts, we do have what people would consider positive adoption stories. And then from your perspective, you know, yours, what many would consider a negative adoption story. But that through line is that we're all trying to live up to or live past something that's been now laid upon us by our adoptive parents, whether they are consciously doing that or not, you know, because as you've brought up multiple times, the dominant adoption narrative is this, 
save the saviorism that comes with adoption or that came with it from the very root of, of how this started, um, how this industry started. And, you know, some people, that's all they knew of it. And then at, in the 50s and 60s, you're not going to have the internet or the 70s or 80s, really. You're not going to have the internet where you can go learn about Korea or look up alternative media sources. And I don't think I should have said alternative media. I think that <laughs> sound is not good now. I think that's a bad, <laughs> bad, bad choice of words. But you, just diversifying your source of information, you know, and so... Yeah, it's just, it, it, I think it's so tough. And I think that, but I think that's what's so interesting and so unique about our community is that no matter our stories, even the, all of our unique stories, and they all matter, but no matter what they are, you know, that's what binds us together as a community um, is these commonalities, whether it be good or bad, that no other community uh, can really articulate or can fully empathize with, if that makes sense. For sure. And like, even looking back on it now, I would say that I did have a positive adoption story. You know, my parents, I never went hungry. I went to school, you know, I got presents on Christmas, but I think where the, the industry falls short is that they're so focused on the transaction. And then once that transaction is completed, it's like, okay, here you go. Bye. No returns, right. you know, that sort of deal. And I think if the industry were more focused on a admitting that their industry profits off the devastation and separation of families, and then B, you know, supporting the adoptees, the birth mothers, the adoptive parents going through that and like healing from that, then we would have such different lives. And you also wonder what narrative the, our parents uh, were told, as you were saying, um, you know, they they believe certain things that they get from these adoption agencies on how they should relay information to the kids. And you never know who's relaying that information. I'm sure there's agencies that are different in the way they portray their message saying, Oh, you should, you should tell your kids that they're, you know, they're lucky or that, you know, that they are, um, that they would have died if they had stayed in Korea. And maybe there's adoption agencies that have completely opposite. Like I'm surprised that, uh, that you're, you're saying that your adoption agency told your parents just not to mention adoption at all until you brought it up. That still surprises yeah, I know, me. That was surprising yeah. me too. Um, but you know, I guess it, it comes down to the specific adoption agencies and and how they portray that message to our parents because I think our parents are just I mean, they're not professionals in adoption. They're not, you know, they didn't have uh, Facebook support groups. They didn't have like a way of really knowing what other people were going through. And so I think they just took the information from adoption agencies to heart and followed what they said. And, you know, it's to a point, I think it's not their fault. Uh, it would be great if they had more accurate information. And, and like you're saying, it, it would be really great if these adoption agencies could maybe change their, their structure a little bit to be more supportive, uh, giving a little bit of a fuller picture of, of the different types of interactions they may have with their kids. Yeah. My adoption agency, I think they're super shady. Mm. Um, they're called new beginnings, which I hate. Like that just the whole name of their agency is just like such a major eye roll. And I remember, I remember going there to get my records because when I requested them, you had to pick them up in person, 
which if you've moved out of state, I don't know how you do that, but whatever. And I went there and when I went to the office, there's this picture of a white couple holding a child that looks to me of like Middle Eastern descent. And there's a big like pink writing and it's like, interested in adopting from the Middle East? Ask us how. And I'm just like, dude, I mean, yeah. Like just slap a discount on there too. I know, right? Five (laughs) off. Call us now. Buy one, get one. Like, I mean, I just and you know what? It's weird because I always get random questions about adoption and what it's like to be adopted. But I remember like being kind of on the young side, I couldn't, I can't even pinpoint an age. And my friend saying, do you ever wonder if your parents are going to send you back to Korea? And I was just like, no, but now I am. I was like, shit, my mom returns shoes all the time. Like what's <laughs> no. like, do I have a receipt? Like, yeah. Is my adoption papers my receipt? Like, is that something that can happen? And unfortunately, it is something that does happen. Yeah. So I think having that support in place saves a lot of emotional labor and emotional Mm -hmm. suffering on everyone's part. And the industry definitely needs to do more by the people that they claim to, to have such an interest in. Yeah, I mean, got to move away from commodification and have to move towards, I mean, humanitarian. I don't know if that's the right word, but I mean, I, I feel like it's pretty apt um, in terms of what, you know, if I if I am to say I'm an adoptee advocate, and I think I am, I'm also an advocate for reform in adoption. Um, and I mm-hmm. think I'm still learning what that specifically is, but there are a lot of resources out there. And I think it starts with, just coming out of the fog that we've talked about on the show before and we've talked about outside of the show. And it starts with understanding yourself and your own place in adoption or in the adoptee narrative or the adoption narrative, where you're at with that and when you want to start moving forward. Because some people, unfortunately, are never going to have that chance or realize that they can take that step. And I think, and so this is where I wanted to go next, is because we've been talking a lot about language, um, especially in terms of what uh, the agencies use, what our parents use, then what we use as adoptees to try and figure all, figure out all of this mess. And it, I think it's really interesting that a lot of our community trends towards creative pursuits and a, does a lot with language, because I think we're always, that's something we're always dealing with. And so I wanted to ask you, Lauren, when you started to channel some of this reclamation or this understanding of your identity into writing and how did that develop? And was, I mean, I don't want to assume, but I'm going to, (laughs) that this was something, this was a huge, this was a big catalyst into that, or this was a big inspiration for writing. Um, Could you talk to to us a little bit about how that uh, journey started? Yeah, so um, I originally started writing in diaries and in journals because I felt like there was so much that I couldn't say to anyone else. And that's really where I found sort of like a release, but also sort of um, an outlet for my grief 
and not knowing that at the time that that's what I was doing was grieving. And then um, I really did want to become a writer from a young age because it was something that I enjoyed doing. And I remember being assigned an essay in high school of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like deep into Kerouac at the time, not in like a pretentious way, but in like a, I want to get like. <laughs> I just heard that like I was deep into Kerouac. Wait, not in a pretentious way. Hold on. Hold like on. In a, I promise I'm a normal person. <laughs> like, in a, I really wanted to like get in a car and like drive to a place where they had drugs, but in a safe way. Um, <laughs> nice. So. Um, I remember writing that I wanted to be a writer and my parents being brought into a meeting with my guidance counselor and being told of the dangerous trajectory that I was heading toward and the un- the instability of my of tra- my career choice. Yeah. And um, my mom was like, well, maybe like legal writing or medical <laughs> writing. And I was just like, well, I guess this isn't happening. So... I tried really hard for a really long time to get like a nine to five and it was really difficult. Like I went into liberal arts so that I could take some creative writing classes and I really excelled in those. But I, in the back of my mind, I was always like, my mom wants me to have a 401k and get married. So I should probably do that. (laughs) And um, I remember I was working, (laughs) I was working at this, I guess shop that installed aftermarket car enhancement parts like stereos and like backup cameras and stuff. And I was just like, I can't do this for another 30 years. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to kill myself if I have to do this for another 30 years. This is awful. So I applied to grad school and I remember telling my parents, Hey, I'm going to school for writing. And my mom going, but you've already gone to school. And I was like, I'm aware of that. <laughs> you know? Yep. I was, th- I, I was there. I remember completing that. And I remember like the first day, I don't even know if it was like the first day, but I remember getting to know the cohort and the other people there and it coming up that I was adopted and everyone was like, Oh, you're going to write about that. Right. And I was like, no, um, I'm really not interested in writing about my adoption. I was like sex in the city sold a million copies and I've dated like a mess of terrible dudes that I can write about. So I'm just gonna, you know, do that because well, it worked for Carrie. And then, (laughs) (laughs) and then as I was sort of going back through all these relationships, I was like, why did I keep going after the same type of person, the same dude who treats me like shit, the same dude who gives me the bare minimum, the same guy who just like doesn't seem to care, but cares enough that I stay. And that's when I sort of uncovered that being adopted and the trauma of not staying with my biological mother was sort of at the root of every decision I'd ever made. And that's when I made the connection and started really writing an adopt adoption centric narrative. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I that's that's a hard pivot, I think. But um, from what you were initially going to start writing to realization of trauma to now, I'm going to start writing about that trauma. What were those first? So you talk. You you said 
focusing on adoption driven narrative. What was what were those first writings like when you start when you made that realization and you're like, I got to put the pen to page about this topic now? What was it? What would become what you're doing now? Or was it just stream of consciousness, you know, all kinds of things? It was really raw for like the first couple of drafts. I would say there were like, I don't want to say hundreds of drafts, but there were like a (laughs) lot. And like, I was still each draft, I think I was getting closer to figuring out that it was about adoption because the first one was like very much, I dated this dude and it didn't work out and I'm sad about it. You know, and um, then like, as I started digging deeper and deeper, it was sort of like, okay, how do I connect that with how I feel? How do I connect this relationship to the relationship that, you know, really informed my entire identity? And it was really difficult to write. It was really painful to relive that trauma and almost not even relive it, but experience it for the first time with clear eyes, you know, what I was really feeling and the pain and the grief that I had. But as I started writing it, I realized I sort of had to keep going because the more that I wrote, the more I realized that I hadn't read a story like this before And I hadn't seen a story like mine represented in mass media, whether it be film, TV, or books. And I thought about the younger adoptee in me and how I would have been changed by having a book like Inconvenient Daughter. Or at least I hope that people feel that way about Inconvenient Daughter, because that's what I wanted. Yes. All right. So you just you just spoke the name. So it's now in existence <laughs> on the show. The show canon now. Um, Inconvenient daughter. I feel like you gave us a really great backstory of how you got to the point of writing that. Could you share with our audience a little bit about what the book is um, from your perspective, and then you know uh, whatever else you want to share about it. So Inconvenient Daughter um, is based on a a transracial adoptee like myself. Uh, The main character's name is Rowan. She is also a Korean transracial adoptee who's adopted by white parents and being raised on Long Island. She also has an affinity for getting into trouble and being with bad dudes. And um, she is really trying to discover herself and what it means to belong you know, not just in the greater sense of like a community, but what it means to belong to a family, what it means to belong to herself in terms of what she owes herself and what she should love about herself. And it's just about someone who's searching and who has to go through like a lot of painful shit to figure out the answer. I can't that wait to read amazing. it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, yeah. mad that I haven't got a copy yet, uh, purchased a copy yet. I'll but send I'm you definitely one. <laughs> no, you t- I'm going to buy one. How long ago did you write this? So it was published in 2020, but I had been seriously working on it for three years. Okay. And um, I was really worried writing this because it was so different from all of the adoption-related media that was out there. So Mm -hmm. when I think about adoption-related media, I always think of, like, reunion videos on Facebook of, like, you know, people crying after being reunited, you know, for a long time, like, adoptees meeting their biological parents, and, you know, the music swells and everyone's crying and stuff. 
or I think about movies like The Blind Side, mm-hmm. you know, where yeah. you know Sandra Bullock is saying, "Oh, you know, she's she loves her son so much, and she doesn't see that he's different." And you know, I didn't really see like an adoption narrative about an adoptee being hurt of being sad of being in mourning and being angry being angry at this supposedly wonderful thing that was supposed to have happened to them that didn't deliver and that's really what i wanted to show i wanted to show like another side because i think that side is really important i'm also so excited and this may just be my own ignorance but i'm so excited that it's a work of fiction um because like as a fellow content creator gross i can't believe i said that um, <laughs> I, uh, not in a pretentious way I, <laughs> not in a pretentious way and yeah. it's on record you just said it i mean i'll probably cut it out it's fine <laughs> he has the power uh, he's the editor yeah um i <laughs> so i i just like because i have the skill set like i feel far far and beyond the podcast i feel some type of uh what's the the phrase uh responsibility to create content from the adoptee perspective uh to like to literally amplify my own voice but like i'm the kind of content creator that's like good for marketing but not for like the kind of content that i want to see you know um so i'm i'm just i'm really excited because this is a work of fiction you are able to write yourself into the story you're able to write other experiences into the story right but it's like I think there's something uh, really wonderful about it being fiction because it's something that then anyone can read themselves into. Mm-hmm. And it's not like uh, reading a memoir where you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like that happened to you. And that's, you know, and, and maybe things are um, anonymized for the purposes of the memoir. But because it's fiction, like you read yourself into that story and you're able to, to understand that. And I think that um, fiction as a, a medium for storytelling is such a powerful way of growing empathy in a way that um, maybe memoirs are really powerful for like kind of just that first awareness um, mm. kind of step, you know? Um, but just like, as I have been taking in uh, content, uh, thinking about kind of all of the energy around uh, the movie Minari and how important it is mm. to see like immigrant stories be represented and Korean American stories be represented. Um, like I've just been like dying for something that was transracial adoptee represent representation, you know? Uh, and so I am so excited to go get your book, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and read it because I, uh, like I just, I just finished Pachinko and I was able oh, to read myself so into good. that story. Yeah. So I was able it's to read my myself CBR. into that story and, 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 <laughs> and think about that. Um, it just got picked up by Apple TV plus. So I'm excited yes. to like watch that. Um, so, but, but you know what I mean? Like, I, it, I think it's just, it's so cool. Uh, and I'm, I'm so happy that this, this is a work of fiction because it means that we are, uh, expanding, um, the pie or baking another pie that we all get to enjoy. Right. It's not just like try to like scooch over and, and cram, cram into like, well, we all have to fit at this one table because that's all we were given. We're like, no, 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 I'll right. just build my own table. I'll bake my own pie and invite some more people. Right. And continue to amplify other stories and other experiences. So, uh, yeah, that is just, that's, I'm, I'm so, so excited about that. And when you mentioned it, um, when I met you the other day, I was like, Oh yes, fiction novel. Like I, I can, this feels like something I can, um, sink myself into in a, in a way that, yeah, is, is accessible to, um, the broader, audience right more than just transracial adoptees but in a way that i think really uniquely validates uh and says like hey other transracial adoptee reading this i see you i know you like you're not alone um and i think that like we talked about this a lot and i I wrote it down because i um 
I felt like this was just such a, a cool thing. The um, what we've been talking about and, and listening to this, um, I just wrote down, and I think Patrick as well. You were talking, um, but we we find ourselves we adoptees uh, searching for language, and uh, historically on this show, when we search for language, it's been about like are you studying Korean? Do you want to learn Korean? Whatever, like kind of getting back to our origin culture. Uh, But as I listen, Lauren, to to the words that you say, and I listen to you say, um, you know, the things about the dominant uh, narrative around adoption, or even the lack of, um, or the single point of view that the adoption lexicon um, is written by, you know, and even like going back to Nathan being like, when I was learning about Korea, I opened an encyclopedia, you know, (laughs) not to age you, bro. Call back. Just because, just because, I mean, no, because like there is like, like when you think about the history of adoption, when you think about the shoulders upon whom we stand, uh, like they're all living, you know, Mm -hmm. like um, adoption, especially South Korean adoption is so young, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just like, two decades removed from us or three decades removed from us um that like it was i don't remember who who i read it from it was just like this grand social experiment you know mm-hmm. um and like we're still kind of figuring that out and so now thanks to uh the world being older and just this moment in time uh we find ourselves we adoptees find ourselves giving each other language mm-hmm. uh so that is is so exciting to me and i'm so glad to have you on because you uh have really represented a new point of view and continue to expand uh even my vocabulary about how i can talk about adoption about how i can listen about adoption if that makes sense um so yeah so that's that's it no question uh but this is fantastic no it's good to hear your story because we do like you said we have a lot of stories about uh you know where everyone came from the biological searches the um you know what they're learning it it, it, a lot of it isn't about what you've spoken about what about your feelings and um you know uh your upbringing and it's a lot about that which is it's really an interesting story i'm sure to, to read and uh yeah thank you for coming on with all this thank you uh, for having me you know, one question that I, as since it has come out i assume this has happened but have you been getting uh letters f- uh, and emails <laughs> from people who have connected to your story with similar uh you know um thoughts and, and uh situations so i think the biggest surprise for me is when it was um before it came out i was really mentally and emotionally preparing myself from the backlash from mm-hmm. the adoptive parent community that's mm-hmm. who i was really concerned about um because it is such i don't want to say it's like an fu to the adoption narrative the dominant adoption narrative but it is like a very firm middle finger um, <laughs> is what I'll say. I like, I like that. that that's different for you. It's not a firm F you, but it is a firm middle finger. Right. So. Yeah. I like um, it. So every now and then I will get like angry emails from adoptive parents that are like, this is not true. To which I have to say, like, of course it's not. It's fiction. Um, (laughs) Rowan is not a real person. I also get a lot of, like, not my adoptee. My adoptee doesn't feel this way. That Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But what's really made the experience great has been the direct messages on Instagram, the tweets, and just, like, the emails from adoptees saying thank you. Mm -hmm. Saying, I feel seen finally Mm -hmm. or saying i didn't know why i felt this way and now i do and i can talk about it um i had one adoptee write to me saying that she made her mother read it with her 
and that they had a really healing or a big a first step towards healing conversation mm, nice. that they weren't yeah. able to have and that's really what it's been for me too because the first when the um when the copies came out the review copies the advanced reader copies came out the first copy i gave was to my mother to read mm. it and um it was probably like the hardest 24 hours of my life (laughs) waiting for a response yeah because we did have such uh an arduous relationship growing up and we Mm -hmm. have come so far in our relationship and i was really scared that this book was going to destroy it um i was really scared that she was going to take it as a judgment because to to a point i am judging her but i'm also judging all adoptive parents But in the book, I'm also judging myself as an adoptee and trying to take ownership of the things I've done to sort of drive a wedge between my relationship with my mother and me. And a lot of people have said that the book is about Rowan finding love, but really it's actually about, um, for me, the love that Rowan is looking for is the love of her mom. And that's the thread that really drives the story is the relationship between Rowan and her mother's name is Marie, I think, <laughs> in the book. If you want to take that again and just say it firmly, and yeah. I'll just like splice that together. <laughs> uh, yes, the real relationship that drives the, the narrative of the book is the, is the relationship between Rowan and Marie, which is her mother. Um, during the uh, during Perfect. the launch of my book, um, they were talking about a character, and it is based on a real person. And I was like, "Oh my god, I forgot what name I gave him. I don't remember." <laughs> you like, only remember the real person. Yeah, like, I don't yeah. remember what the made up name was. And I was just like, "Oh my god, what's his name?" Because <laughs> it had been so long. <laughs> but yeah, it's been really humbling to see. Um, so many adoptees sort of rally behind the book and feel represented and feel seen. And I really just hope that it inspires more people, more adoptees to tell their stories because that's what we need. We need more adoptee stories in the world. And that's why I offer free writing and publishing workshops to help adoptees verbalize their story and make their stories into something that, is either just for them or that they can share with another person or that they can put out into the world however they want to. Hell yeah. I think this goes without saying, but I think that something that just really stands out to me in that story and your decision to publish this book um, and to put so much of your raw life story within the pages of Rowan's story is the amount of bravery that it takes to be willing to put out a project like that when, as you just said, you know, you were worried that this was going to be the the schism between you and your and your mother, your adoptive mother, uh, that you would obviously come so far from uh, after your childhood. And I think, honestly, I'm I, it just it makes me emotional because I I I want to be that brave when it comes to having discussions like that. You know, it's it's. I think that that step there is like that bravery to, to release something like that is 
where I want to get to. Like that's the, <laughs> I'm getting emotional. Uh, that's where <laughs> I, that's the place I want to reach. I want to be able to be that brave. And I think I just want to thank you for taking that step because not just for me, but for all adoptees, that's a, an example to look up to, to really solidify the fact that our voices and our stories do matter and that it does take a lot of bravery and it's hard. It's hard to, to, to have that conversation and to be willing to put yourself out there like that when it could literally overthrow your entire life. So thank you for that. And I, it's, I'm weirdly, weirdly emotional right now. <laughs> no, I think it's, yeah. I think it's because like, like, we t- I mean, again, it goes back to that idea of language and, and, and this work of fiction is literally the gift of language to someone who, you know, maybe doesn't feel confident speaking, doesn't have the vocabulary to express themselves. Uh, maybe they have a, a, a rocky relationship with their adoptive parents or whatever. And then they're like, you know, I read this, I feel seen. Um, and it's a, it's a work of fiction, but I think it's a good, like me and my mom or me and my dad need to start a book club and we just read, there's only one book in this book club and we just need to talk about it, you know? Yeah. And, but because it, it like, and that's like the thing. And I think partially is just because I, I am coming off the back of reading Pachinko. And that was mm. like, I told my wife, I was like, this book makes me want to be an English scholar. Like it reminds <laughs> me of something I read in high school. That's a, a practice that I liked getting into. Right. Um, and, and I'm just remem- like, I just reminded of, of the power of story mm-hmm. and the way that it really begins to open some conversations in a, in a powerful and a unique way, you know? So, um, to, to have that is, is literally you giving words to, uh, maybe a family, a relationship where there, there previously were no words. And I just want to, um, applaud you for giving that book to your mom, because, uh, I think that that, you know, it's so easy, um, because, you know, teenagers are teenagers and like, it's, it's kind of that stereotypical, it's stereotypical for a reason, right? They're like teenage years are just hard. Right. Um, and, and to whatever degree, uh, they, you know, sometimes greater, sometimes lesser, but, but those years are hard for parents and and kids. Uh, and so, you know, you come out the other side of that and you grow up and then maybe, you know, if you're, if you have done the hard work of restoring that relationship, um, and for, and Lauren, for you to, to push even further and say, uh, you know, we've taken some steps forward, but this, is something that really matters to me this is something that i there is a great gravity that i cannot get away from and i need you to to be with me i need you to at least hear it you know even if we can't even if this represents like a a breaking point for a while and it will take another 20 years until we have the next conversation i need this to just sit in your head you know um and so just the yeah, the bravery and the courage to to say, Mom, this relationship that I have with you is important enough that I'm I'm willing to risk this schism. I'm willing to risk this, you know. Um, and so I, man, I hope this book just is everything that you have put into this book. I hope that it is that for more people, um, because just as as a human relating to another human, I think that that is such a brave practice. Um, and and with all of the complexity of being an adoptee and and having this, you know, the story that makes you uniquely you, uh, and the story of this book that makes this book so unique. Uh, I hope that it is uh, parallel and helps somebody else um, take the next step forward into uh, a more restored, a more um, 
just even even pushing for reconciliation and and healing uh within a family unit because like being adopted is tough uh and sometimes (laughs) you don't even realize how tough it is until you hear a bunch of other adoptees talk about it and you're like oh my god wait i felt like that you know i i did that and then you're like oh do i start to feel like this now you know and you just (laughs) like you wrestle with that but the more content that we can put out and the more stories we can share you're like no no no, i'm not alone i have this support system and thank god for the internet right that we uh can actually have (laughs) meaningful uh relationship like the four of us have never met in person and yet we build meaningful relationships and can find support you know in that uh so thank you so much for what you're doing for the the way that you are are using your platform to help amplify other voices um how can people jump on that how can they get access to your where can people find you on the internet so that they can start finding community of their own so i'm probably the most active on instagram my handle is the lj sharks and there's a link in my bio to buying the book to my website and to the free writing workshops that i'm offering which i'm hoping will be much more regular um thank you guys so much for your kind words and for your reverence and respect um When I wrote Inconvenient Daughter, I think when I started writing it, I was writing it for me. But by the time that it was being published, I think I was still writing it for me, but I was writing it for that young, angry, and grieving adoptee I was when I was younger, who didn't have the language to verbalize what they were going through, who didn't have a shoulder to lean on. And I just want other adoptees to know, like, not only are you enough, but like your story and your feelings and your experience and your life is valid, you know, despite what you've been told by the dominant adoption narrative. And, you know, obviously not every adoptee has to take the risk of publishing a book that may destroy their relationships. There are a couple, there are a couple of aunts and uncles I did not receive Christmas cards from this year. And that's, <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. You know, it is what it is, but like, you know, the person who mattered, I think that person for me was my mom and she really, she raced through the book. She finished it in a day And the first text she sent me was a picture of a little piece of paper that she had tallied all the curse words on. (laughs) (laughs) And she had them all out. Shit, fuck, like all of them. And just like a tally. And she was like, so I don't think we should get Nana a copy. And I was like, no, mom, I, I don't think that Nana needs a copy. Did she feel like she needed to go to like confessional after reading it? Yeah. She's like, I don't know if I'm allowed to have these words. And in my- the square, the swear jar tally is $5 and 25 cents. I actually got asked about a lot of the profanity in the book. And I obviously have like, as you guys know, a potty mouth. But I think it's just because um, that's how people talk. That's true. And um, I really wanted to make, even though Rowan is made up, I wanted to make her feel real. And Mm -hmm. real people swear and real people do really questionable things. So (laughs) that's sort of like Rowan's MO is to, she's like the girl at the beginning of the movie who goes outside the house to investigate the sound where you're like, no, don't do that. That's Rowan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> amazing they make it to the end of the movie sometimes so and yeah i, I guess no spoilers to the end. yeah no spoilers <laughs> for the book 
<laughs> the ending was a point of contention for a lot of people, but I think Ooh, intrigue. Okay. Yes. It was definitely a point of contention for a lot of people. A lot of people left reviews that were like, the ending didn't make sense to me. Um, which is fine. Um, one of my favorite reviews was from a non-adoptee who said I didn't like the book because Rowan never gave her parents credit for adopting her. <laughs> That's my huh. favorite review. <laughs> wow. I like that, that person took the time to read the book, and that was their immediate takeaway. Yeah. Right from the jump. Except with this. <laughs> um, Amazing. I don't know. I I was I don't know. I've got caught up in that in that yeah, moment earlier. I think that there is like uh, so there's so many other things that we could talk to you about, uh, but it feels right to leave it. to to cap it here uh whether you know if this is act one of lauren x the john t show um (laughs) i would totally do that i'll come back when you guys have read it all (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely we'll have to do it we'd love to yeah whenever when we break into two it'll be yeah that'd be amazing so uh lauren thank you so much for coming on the show for sharing uh you your time your stories uh with us and with the world um one more time um what is the book called where can people get it how can we support you um it's called inconvenient daughter and please buy it through your local independent bookstore um please don't give your money to amazon if you don't really have to bezos don't need that dollar (laughs) yeah they don't need it bezos doesn't need any more money (laughs) (laughs) independent bookstores need money because that those are the people who make um our stories possible you know the only reason that i'm a writer was because i was a reader first so support your local bookstore please nice local bookstore plug for sure um yeah i guess lauren yeah i gotta say thank you too um seriously when you agreed to come on on yesterday on super <laughs> short notice. Um, sometimes those conversations can be can be really fruitful and good, and sometimes they can drag a little bit because we're not as prepared uh, as we would like to be. But I was excited to have you on specifically because I have followed you for a little bit now on my own journey, and your voice is so refreshing in the space. It's not just blunt; it's honest uh, and it's real, like it, like the language that we're trying to achieve. Um, and so I just really, really appreciate you for continuing that work and um, just really, really thank you for coming on. Thank you um, guys for having me because the work you're doing here is so important. Like I think so many of us struggle with where to start in terms of our identity reclamation. So the John Chi Show is definitely like a beacon of hope and like a starting place. Like you guys are kind of like the lighthouse on like the stony rock thing, you know, trying to like, point the way of like how to get home i like that analogy Thank i you. just heard the sam smith song in my head new song and new logo the lighthouse i was thinking of aquaman with jason momoa <laughs> all right um we're gonna go to a quick break and we'll be back with uh, i think a food thing i'm not sure but all right We'll find out. (laughs) 
We're back with our food segment. You know what time it is. Thank you so much, uh, Lauren, for that incredible interview. It was really, really, really fantastic. Um, so today we are getting into another one of the snacks from Munch Addict's Korean snack box subscription deal. Um, and we are eating the sweet potato shaped snack. Or uh, Patrick, what does the Korean say? Uh, <laughs> Nathan, what does Put the Korean say? The, spot. <laughs> the last letter is ah. Nice. Uh, it is uh, Gokuma, Gokuma, which I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that means, but Gokuma. upon observing the package, I realize at the bottom, uh, uyu, which means milk in Korean. Oh. Uh, so mm. I guess nice. there is. 1.34%. I don't actually know hmm. what that, you know, there's stuff in, in parentheses, but uyu is one of my favorite Korean words because I think it sounds so silly. So I don't in see English, any fish says, extract in here. So in English, it says Korean biscuit. So what, where on my on the side the side. Oh, um, it does is have peanut m- in it for anybody allergic oh. to peanuts. Wheat, peanut milk. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it. Uh, I don't know. What's the name of the company? I've never heard of this one. Kosu Masu. C O S M O S. Kosu Kosu Masu. Is this what a sweet potato looks like? Like when it's cut up and shaped like a cinnamon roll? I mean, it looks like. I don't know. Like a tomato that you put on your burger. Well, I've ate. Yeah, yeah, it does kind of look like. Well, no, I don't know. That doesn't look like a very good tomato. Less talking, more eating. All right. Kudero. It does look yeah. like a cinnamon roll. I will give you that. Is there, wait, is there an open here? It smells like a cinnamon roll. Really? I mean, it could also be like the back of a snail. That's what I was just about to say. I'm like, what are these snails? Snails. <laughs> snail shells. Oh, yeah. I like it. That does taste good. Um, now that I've listened to the girls' episode, I, I have learned that Sarah really doesn't like it when I... Don't save her the snacks. I will save her the <laughs> I know, right? Oh, mm. okay. That's Wait, I good. think I've had this before. Huh. It is so reminiscent of a snail shell because it's even cone-shaped on some of them. I'm going to be honest. This does not taste like a sweet potato. It tastes like a donut. Yeah. A hard, hard donut. I think of the inside of a tree that's been chopped down. Because it's got those rings. How old know? are you, snail? In the tree. <laughs> How old are you, sweet potato? Mmm. Well, here's the weird part: is it says sweet potato, but the number one ingredient is wheat flour. Yeah, wait, sense. is there even sweet potato in this business? Uh, there's processed vegetable. Yeah, I know. That's I'm confused. Why it's called sweet potato? So this is hmm. a 300 calorie bag. I think that's the highest amount of calories we've had on a product so far. Okay, here, here, here's product. something that's kind Maybe. of funny, and I don't know if this is true, but it doesn't necessarily say it has sweet potato in it. Look at the packaging again. It says. Sweet potato shaped. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. What even is the shape of a sweet potato? I not this. Not little know. circles. Yeah, there's definitely sesa- not. This. I think there's sesame seeds on it too. But no one surprised me. There is a savoriness that like I reminds like me of some, sa- these some are good. sesame stuff. I'm yeah. enjoying these. Yeah, I mean, other than the fact that I don't think it has any sweet potato relevance. Well, it's so- colored like a sweet potato. <laughs> The picture on the package is very representative of what's in the actual package. Yeah. I was going to say I didn't like it, but I actually do like that. Yeah. You, you know mean, what you're getting into with this. Yeah. Goguma Hyung. Goguma. 
Wait, kill Yeah. You should That's what that other thing is. I don't know. I've Kuma just reminds me of like Panda, so I don't know what this is. Or the Beatles, Beatles the Beast Boy song, Kokomo. That means sweet potato. Kokuma. All right. Kokuma. There you go. Wait, how did you type that in? Because I'm fast. <laughs> but like what? English or Korean? I just typed in Google, what is sweet potato in, or what is sweet potato in Korean? <laughs> okay. You went the other direction. Yeah. Solid. I just went with the first guess estimate. The first guesstimate. All right. So let's get into ratings. I like it. Even mm. though it doesn't have any relevance to sweet potato, I'm, I'm a fan. I would eat these. I'll give it a four and a half out of five. Wow. That's really high. Yeah. I'm, I've eaten these things. I like the sweetness to it, too. It's got like a glaze on it that I mm-hmm. is addicting. Yeah, I would. I was gonna say four and a half, but now I'm gonna bump it to a four. Um, because oh. Nathan's you're gonna four bump and a half. it down. <laughs> it's really good, actually. I really like these. Uh, the reason I bump it down a little bit is because one, not a sweet potato, and two, I just feel like I would eat so many of these, it would be really bad for my health. <laughs> so you can't make something so good unless it is so good that I give it a five. You know, my rating I mean, system is a little wonky. It is a small bag, and it's 300 calories for the entire bag. So. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. There's lots of it because of the sugar in it, which is why it tastes that glaze tastes so good. I was so going to say, yeah, this is probably one of the sweeter like snacks, Korean snacks. It's not yeah. a proper candy. 38 grams of sugar, 220 grams of salt. There you so go, It's Nathan. not only That's salty, it's sugary and delicious. <laughs> so for comparison, this tiny bag is 300 calories. This uh-huh. large whale chip bag is 132 calories. Yep. <laughs> well, facts. Good thing I don't eat these every day. What do you think, KJ? Um, I think I'm at about a four. Uh, I don't love the, like, the glaze tastes really good, but there's nothing I hate more in the world than sticky fingers. And I feel my fingers getting sticky oh, really? from eating these. Yeah. So, less than ideal. Uh, I do like the flavor. I actually. I don't love the sweetness, but the uh, ending of this really keeps me coming back. You know, like when I finish it and it just sits in your mouth, and you're like, I'm ready for another one. So I could definitely see myself eating this whole bag. Maybe that's because it's dinner time, but I think it's because <laughs> these are really good. So uh, solid four out of five milks. There you go. Four out of five gogumas. No, uyus. What is it? Four uyus out of five gogumas. Oh. Whoa, wait, know. what is... Goguma. Yeah, Goguma. Goguma. Right. Oh, I said. White ding. Well, <laughs> I think they're good, so... I like them, good too. Good job. And thank you, Munch Addict. Good job, Kosumosu. Did I say that right? Kosumosu. Yes. Yeah. Patrick, send us out, man. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, everyone, for hanging out with us while we eat food, and you're not also eating food, but hopefully you are. Um... Make sure if you came to the YouTube uh, channel for this, you go check out our podcast. Um, our interview with Lauren Sharkey, again, is really great. Just want to quickly plug her book, Inconvenient Daughter, out now. Make sure you go get a copy of that. Um, you can catch us every Wednesdays or every Wednesday at um, any anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, yeah, we're we talking Apple. Episodes. We're talking Google. We're talking Spotify. We're talking Quick Amazon. Trip. We're talking Philip sixty six. Tune in. Audible. <laughs> Kmart. Uh, Kmart. Walmart. Yeah. Pet Wherever Smart. you get your podcast. <laughs> Sam's Club. H Mart. So, Costco. I can name places. Lowe's. The lamp store. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> 
Anyways, um, so make sure you check out our podcast. Make sure you go and follow us um, at John Chi Show on all the social media platforms. Make sure you join us at the John Chi Show After Party group on Facebook. Catch up with us on our regular lives. We usually are talking about food for some reason, um, but it's a good time over there. Lots of great content. You can catch me specifically at Patrick in the World on Instagram, at Patrick Isn't Real on SoundCloud, and at Patrick Armstrong everywhere else. And if you guys want to email us, feel free to email us at John G Show at Just Like Media. Um, also, yeah, Patrick's got a whole lot of new friends, so he doesn't care about the emails, but I really no, care about the emails. I still care about the emails, too. So yeah, please, please email care about them, too. And honestly, if you guys are interested in um, being on the show, email us or message us, one of us. Uh, we would love to have you as a guest, and we have an a application form that you can fill out and uh, submit. So uh, contact us if you're interested and want to tell your story. But uh, you can find me at uh, um, Noak Photo and my personal account, which is actually nnoak. Ooh, plug First in the p- p- personals. <laughs> I'm First opening time personal it up. plug. Nice. All right. Well, you can find me at KJ Relke and all the places that I want to be found. Um, also, I'm going to plug our website, johnchishow.com. Uh, there is some blogging that is happening, some things going on behind the scenes. Uh, just quietly, we're just hanging out there, just putting some things out. Um, so if you're like interested in maybe more of our stories, you want to like... It's, you're tired of hearing us, but you still want to like hear from us. You can like go and read our written content or like maybe you don't follow Patrick. And he was like, well, you know, I'll just put this on the blog. So, um, yeah, that's that's uh, that's what's up. Uh, I should have my first cover of a Korean song coming out yeah. soon. That will either be in our Facebook group or on our YouTube channel. It's or really good. Somewhere. Um, so, yeah, so I'm pretty excited about that. I learned a lot and I'm probably never going to do a Korean indie song again because it's real hard. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. So check that out. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we will see you next week. Till then, Johnchi, hey yo, hey yo.